0: Blog talk
1: radio. Hello Alpera, my name is Sam Maxwell and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And once again, uh, I, I have brought back to the show uh, Clem Labine's family friend, Rick Elliott. Clem, I mean, um, excuse me, Rick, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine, uh, Sam, thank you for inviting me. And for those out there uh, who aren't as well versed uh, in Clem Labine's career, and just wanted to let you all know, Clem Labine uh, was a Dodgers pitcher, a great Dodgers pitcher, and uh, also was one of the earliest firemen in the uh, you know relievers in the history of, of baseball. He would come uh, come in a lot of times to uh, put out the fire, and um, you know you you I look at his numbers, Rick, and you see a lot of uh, you know double digit saves when. That wasn't really the, uh, the trend at the time.
0: That's right. You know, uh, Sam, you bring that up, and, and I think back. The statistics weren't even being measured the same way. So a lot of the, uh, the statistics had to, be go back, had to be looked back at again with the future, uh, with the current mathematical schemata that are used. And they realized that in years, I think two or three years, Clem led, led, the, led the league in what is uh, – or the majors in what is now considered saves. He was considered to a lot of people the very first prototypical reliever. In fact, Sam, there's a card uh, that came out, a baseball series card called Then and Now. And it's split pictures of the current and the previous players who best signified it. And he shares a card with Mariano Rivera, Then and Now. Well,
1: there you the jump. series
0: came out in the late, late 1990s, 2000. But yep, you're right. He, was, he emerged into the role. Of the reliever, and he grew to love that role.
1: Yeah, that that is what I've read about him. And but before we get uh, knee deep in uh, Dodgers and and uh, Clem Labine, I do want to congratulate you since I know you're a big Red Sox fan on the World Series victory. Uh, thanks. I was wondering if you were
0: going to mention it, Sam. It's a, um, absolutely uh, uh, a wonderful time, and I've been, I've been, um, I've, I think I'd mentioned to you in a private conversation. I had I had a smile on my face for a number of days. the ownership of the Red Sox haven't made any boneheaded moves yet. We still have Jacoby Ellsbury in center field, hopefully unless someone like the Mets or Seattle steal them. But, um, it's been a pleasure. And it's also been a pleasure because big Pappy has been such a, uh, David, he's such a great spokesman for the Red Sox and was willing to make the tour of all the talk shows and everything. And did, did a wonderful job, um, representing, uh, representing the team, being the spokesman for the team. And, um, uh, and uh, so yes, thanks for mentioning it. It really was a season we didn't expect,
1: especially after guys, last
0: year's disaster. Yeah,
1: right. I was about to mention. You know, you guys didn't have as as glorious of a time as as uh, us Mets fans had with Bobby Valentine. Who uh, who well, I'll tell you when, you know, uh, the Mets were when they were looking for another manager. A lot of us wanted Bobby Valentine back. But I think, uh, and just to side uh, just a bit before we get back into the uh, the olden days. But with Bobby Valentine, it seems like he wasn't prepared to get back into the major leagues, having been in Japan for close to 10 years. Right.
0: And you know, I don't know what it was. I, I, and I don't think we'll ever any of us ever know exactly why he was so ill-prepared. Well but for some reason, the dynamic didn't, didn't happen, whether it was personalities, whether it was his lack of preparation, or maybe... He had gotten to a point in his career where he could no longer manage that kind of dynamic um, mm-hmm. roster. I don't know, but it was a bloody disaster, and it left us heartbroken. We never d- dreamt we'd, we'd uh, even give ourselves a good season, and here we gave a—they gave us a magic season. So, thank you for mentioning
1: that. Absolutely, congratulations again. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, uh, like you said, they haven't made any boneheaded moves yet, so you let smile stay for a little bit. Yeah, that's and, uh, right. But now going all the way back to the 50s and Clem Levine's time with the Dodgers, I want to discuss Jackie Robinson a bit more. We, we uh, brushed it uh, some the last time you were here when talking about his visit to Woonsocket, where you're from and where Clem is from. Uh, so what personally, what is your earliest memory of Jackie Robinson?
0: Well, I think, Sam, that I, I go back and look at my age. I think that that 55 visit... Was was something I legitimately is in my memory. There's so many photographs around the houses and in, in the family, and there were so many pictures that my dad took of everybody. It's hard to separate when a picture, when when the, when it was a photograph that's triggering thoughts or memory. But certainly by 54, 55 series, I was aware of Jackie Robinson. I was eight years old. Um, he was uh, he was Clem's he was a Clem's teammate, and. Um, even at that young age, we were aware that there, was now, there were now black ball players, and that our Dodgers had made the move. And it was a source of pride for us um, uh, as Clem's friends. And essentially, we come from a liberal, progressive Northeast background. I mean, the, those of us who come from that kind of background and then r- root with um, all our heart for a team like the Dodgers, it was, it was a wonderful sense that Jackie Robinson was one of us. And I think that that really blossomed in me, I would have to guess, as the 55 season steamrolled on. And I certainly remember his visit to Woonsocket in 55 when he toured my dad's factory. I had mentioned that to you before and, and was so, um, so generous with his time to help Clem come down, celebrate the victory, tour the plant where Clem spent the rest of his uh, of his working career, my dad's factory, and also helped raise money for a flooded out socket at the time. So, those are my early earliest memories of Jackie. I would say.
1: So, how would you say, outside of the teammate aspect, uh, their relationship was out, you know off the field? Um, I,
0: I would I would say, I can't verify it, but I can. My instinct and my memory of Clem's conversations. And then looking at some of the behavioral, behavioral interaction they had as friends, that there was something, that there was a connection there. You know, since we last spoke Sam, I think back, Clem's uh, job with us started when he was a 15 year old boy in Woonsocket, um, part time in our shipping room. And, and Clem befriended Isaiah Lindsay, the, the very first black employee in Woonsocket. So, Clem was colorblind, ironically, literally and figuratively. Clem was colorblind. He didn't see things that way. He, he ha- didn't seem to have any of those racial preferences or even religious preferences. He was, he was really an open-minded fellow. And I think that and whether that – I'm not sure exactly how that develops in some people so early, but Clem was truly colorblind. He didn't see his universe in terms of black and white like that. So he was a natural. When he ended up with the Dodgers, my guess is – And Clem's feelings were that he and Jackie Robinson connected. They connected uh, for a lot of different reasons. Robinson probably sensed in him a man who didn't see color as significant. And Clem has always expressed how proud he was of Robinson, how he was the most fearless man Clem had ever met. So my, my sense is that they had a very, very strong friendship. In fact, Sam... In 58, Jackie Robinson had just gotten out of baseball, and he invited Clem to march in a, in a, in a, a very a little-known event taking place in D.C. This was not the 63 March on Washington. In 58, Jackie Robinson asked a few of his white friends and his black friends, of course, but a few of his white friends from the baseball community and from the business community, to participate in a smaller wa- march in Washington, D.C., because they were trying to fully desegregate the public school system in D.C., and they were trying to desegregate Little League Baseball. So the first time Jackie Robinson reached out to Clem was not 63 at the Big March. It was 58. And and when that happened, of course, Clem was still active. Jackie had retired. Clem was still with the Dodgers. They'd moved to L.A. They still had some hopes of being pennant contenders. Um, And Clem's response to, to Robinson in 58 was, I would love to go Jackie and I support you 100% but I'm planning on having plans in California in early October which was his attempted at humor I hope we make the play I hope we make the series and then he ended his note and he said to to Robinson but I'll be there next time and um and it it, it ironically that became a big regret of Clem's um that next time because the next time Robinson reached out to Clem Levine was 1963 and it was to request that Clem and other members, white members of that 55, of that 50s team, um, lend support to Robinson in the march in Washington. Jackie, of course, everybody knows it, but he had emerged as a leading activist for the civil rights movement. And he wanted his teammates there. And despite his promise that Clem made to him, I'll be there next time, Clem didn't feel he could go the next time for the strangest of reasons, but he couldn't go that second time. And um, it, w- it was a huge regret in Clem's life,
1: Sam. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if uh, his family, just being around his family, and, and there were some issues at the time, uh, in 1963 specifically, but in general, uh, Clem, Clem felt as if uh, his, his family life was slightly uh, suffered because of, of being away from them so long during his playing career. And did that factor into his
0: decisions oh, yeah, at all yeah. at the time? That was the decision. You're right on the money. What happened was Clem looked back at his, well, it started Newport News, Virginia. After he got back from, uh, from World War II, it started Newport News 47. He, Clem didn't really come home until 62 when the Mets dropped him. So if you look at it that way, Clem had three children while he was a major leaguer. And um, he always wondered. In fact, he even openly expressed it in the Providence Journal interview with a gentleman named um, Bill Perillo, a good interviewer. Um, 30 years ago he says you always wonder how much damage you do as a ball player not being there and in Clem's case um, he came home to a family of three children who he admits he barely knew he came home to a wife who hung on because she adored him she worshipped him his first wife Barbara and they held it together he comes home and Barbara becomes pregnant with a, uh, just at the end of uh, Clem's career Clem gets dropped by the Mets, and he comes home to um, rebuild a family life to a new baby. So he had a brand-new baby girl named Kimberly who still lives in the area, Kimmy Levine. And um, his thoughts were that he had blown it the first time, that he had not been the family man because of his decisions. And when he was asked to go with Jackie Robinson to march on Washington, it wasn't a personal fear of getting hurt or getting killed, although that was the fear, Clem wasn't a frightened guy. He was a tough guy. He felt guilty that if he got hurt or killed in Washington on this march, he would be abandoning his family for the second time. And he made a very difficult decision. He told Jack, and he told Jack, he said, Jackie, I would go in a heartbeat, but I have a new baby. I can't leave Barbara again with this family. Mm-hmm. I have to turn you down. And um, of course, Jackie Robinson was gracious in his response. Um, I, I, I understand Clem, he said, but later on clem never felt that uh, clem never felt that clem did the right thing clem said to me all those years in baseball and my one baseball regret is from something i didn't do after my baseball career and mm-hmm. um, it was very poignant till the day till the last time i saw him that robinson conversation came up sam he felt that he made the wrong decision and that whatever the risk could be he owed that to jackie robinson and on the other hand, it's hard for me to say that about Clem because he's still my hero. But I will yes. tell you, Sam, that he's one of the few people who would, who would admit that openly too. And
1: that was also right. a wonderful part of Clem. You see, for me, uh, you know, even though this is outside of the timeline in terms of what I'm looking to do when it comes to this, uh, this television series, 1937 to 1957, from a storytelling perspective, from a character perspective, even though a lot of how characters are shaped is obviously the background of the time and what's going on, it, it's still the the human condition uh, of the mm. stories that you tell even about his post-career that that it is just, that's fascinating to
0: me. Sure, and they're universal stories. They, they, they are, you're right, and I had not thought of it in those ways, but whether it happens in 51 or, or 49 or even in 63 when Clem LeBine uh, uh, makes a decision cons- which he considered to be the, the biggest regret of his life. It is an, it is a universal, often repeated story. Men's courage and the choices we make. And um, even though I might be out of the a bit out of the timeline, but it sure is a um, it sure was a poignant story for him to tell. It was a tough story for him to tell when he would when he would tell us.
1: And well, going back to the timeline and certainly a you know a proper segue, uh, he had an incident that would have been all over YouTube nowadays if this happened to uh, somebody rehabbing down below in the minor leagues. If you want to talk a little bit about the uh, the story at the St. Saint Paul Saints in 1953. Oh yeah, when when uh, St. Paul had to go down to Louisville to play the coroner. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay,
0: Clem, this, on the other hand, the story of regretting Jackie, the decision with Jackie being one of his biggest regrets, this was one of Clem's favorite stories to tell in very small company. And I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe he was trying to Uh, rationalized something to himself. But it was was an incident in 53. Clement had shoulder problems in the 53 season. They sent him back down to AAA St. Paul Saints. And at that time, they had a scheduled game down in Louisville, Kentucky. I think it was the Red Sox AAA team back then, the Colonels, but whatever. And so there's – Clem goes back for what was to be a 14- or a 15-day, what we would call on the disabled list, but his shoulder strain. They wanted him to work a few innings every second or third game, whatever they did back then. So he gets to St. Paul, and off they go by train, I guess, to to Louisville. And they get down into this, you know, essentially southern community and um, where the integration of of baseball had not been as as eagerly um, received or as warmly received. And um, there were still some racial tensions. Uh, uh, it was very early in the integration of baseball. Very, very early. It was six years into it. But Clem ends up in a in a in a circumstance down in AAA, and uh, in a in a fairly packed Louisville, um, as he remembers, um, two, three, four thousand people at Louisville. His assignment is to pitch the fourth, fifth, and sixth. So when he takes the mound in the fourth inning. There's one fellow behind the third base, Grandstand Clemson, said about 15 rows up, he can hear him clear as a bell screaming. Um, I won't use the words that the fellow used, but uh, with a, these huge, level lunged voice, he would scream, Hey, Levine, how can you play with a such-and-such? And and ironically, it wasn't Jackie Robinson or Roy Campanella or the early, the earliest few guys that this fellow was aggravated about. For some reason, this, this, this uh, fellow in the stands was angry at Junior Gilliam. Gilliam was making a big mark that year. I think Gilliam might have gone on to be rookie of the year that year. But he had taken a dislike to a black Junior Gilliam. And he was, Clem says he was merciless. When Clem would get on the, on the mound, started in the fourth, hey, Labine, how can you play with so-and-so? Hey, Labine, and it went on. So Clem knows that in Louisville no one's going to put an end to it so Clem was a young tough guy he watches the 4th inning 5th inning he hears the voice he locates it a bit with his eyesight he sees how many rows up 6th inning he watches and actually sees the fellow what he's wearing the color of his shirt or sweater and after his stint is over instead of going into the dugout Clem hops the rail runs up the steps in this Louisville, Kentucky stadium and jumps the guy and starts to pound on him and as Clem said we went down on the cement floor, with peanut shells flying everywhere, and uh, Clem said, "If I hadn't had my spikes slipping on the cement, I would have had him better. I would have had him <laughs> you know, good." But uh, the fight ended because um, the police jumped in. Clem got cocked on the back of the head, and uh, was separated from with a billy club. Then he was separated. They both went to the police station. No charges were pressed. But Clem loved to tell a story, and always at the end of the story, Sam, he would put his hand behind his head and lift the back of his hair over his neck, and you could see like a three-inch scar. It became like Not a red, red badge of courage. You red. Know? Here's where the cop hit me for defending my black teammate. You know? And so as you ask the question in context of Jack, Jackie Robinson, Robinson must have known that story. Clem never, never mentioned it in terms of telling Jackie or Jackie saying anything. But when I think back on their relationship these were very aware and bright men, and they were teammates. They knew who was standing up and who wasn't. And I'll always believe that Robinson was well aware that Clem Labine um, went up in the stands in, in, um, in foreign territory to defend a black player. And I think that all, that, that's how relationships are either made or not made, Sam, I think.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'm not exactly sure whether these details were ever uh, voiced by Clem to you. And uh, it's certainly... Uh, it was the right thing to do Uh, you you know I guess you could also say fighting is never the right thing to do but but in in terms of people of that nature sometimes the best way uh, you know if you're not going to sway them with words well right uh, uh, but you know uh, the the things that come up in in my head and and I I don't know if you're gonna know this stuff is how the Dodgers reacted to it whether it affected his rehab you know, just in terms of in in terms of the fact that he was injured and then was getting into a fight with somebody, yeah. uh, these are the these are the details that I'm I'm now curious about, even though I know that you you might not be able to share those with us.
0: Let me say to you, it did not affect his rehab because he was okay. back up in 15 days. Um, uh, Clem was a very strong fellow, uh, Sam, and he was a very muscular fellow. And I, I don't know before the, of all of the intense trainings that are available today, even around the league, there was notes made of it when, he, when, when he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in '57. The interior pictures of his physique—he was a tough kid—and six-one was a was a was a big fellow. And so he he was a, f- a strong. Uh, the comment in Sports Illustrated, I, I think, by the author was, "He looks like a blacksmith." So he fought his way through those physical things. He, it did not affect his rehab. It didn't. Clem, in the '60s, when the early '60s, when the Mets dropped him, his arm had just gotten tired, his whole arm. Yeah. But it wasn't from a specific incident. The, the, the other thing he mentions is that Joe Black, the, the, the African-American pitcher um, for the Dodgers at the time, who would have a short but an interesting career with the Dodgers, he seemed to get the biggest kick out of it. And um, that fight, because there were times when they would, make, uh, when they would uh, hook up again in Brooklyn and he would never say anything, come up to Clem with a smile, put his arm around him and say, you know, you're really something, Labine. And then he wouldn't continue. He wouldn't say, for defending Gilliam or for whatever, just, you're really something, Labine. So Joe Black uh, is the one addendum to that story that Clem thought was funny. Big Joe Black would come put his arm around Clem and say, hey, Labine, you're really something. And Clem felt it was uh, it was a compliment for helping out his other
1: teammate. Exactly, and it's certainly something that uh, when I get to the 1963 season in my writing, and uh, and and you know, if I'm ever so lucky to get that far in terms of the seasons, which uh, you know, I think if this is a sellable project, I definitely believe that uh, you know I'll be able to get through the entire timeline. But it's something that I'm I'm already. Uh, cinematically putting together in my head as we speak. Yeah, uh, it, was, it, was, um,
0: it was quite a story. And Clem, who's now deceased, you know, but Clem told it beautifully, you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, as we said, we started talking about Jackie Robinson. And we started talking about J- J- uh, Clem's regrets about um, something he didn't do, namely didn't march. Right. But he took pride in that. He took pride. Clem did not suffer bullies gladly same as the expression goes. And to Clem, anybody who was taking advantage of, uh, of a minority group or a smaller group or a black or a Jew or someone in a compromised situation because of some hatred or ignorance or whatever it was or unwillingness to accept, Clem never took it. He never suffered uh, fools gladly, as the expression goes. And
1: uh, I think and that Clem that was proud of that. It's, yeah, it's a great trait to have. Uh, and it, it's, it's unfortunate that we're not able to talk to Clem as well, but I appreciate your insight regarding it. Uh, and speaking of insight regarding Clem's feelings, uh, let's, uh, trans, let's, let's transition over to his feelings on Walter O'Malley. Uh, you know, Walter O'Malley is obviously a very polarizing figure in Brooklyn Dodgers history, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so many different people have a black-and-white opinion of him. Mm-hmm. What was Clem Levine's feeling of Walter? It was
0: not black and white, and um, but it was a bright gray. If you're asking me, I mean, I know, I know what you're referring to, Sam. That um, in that in the in the complicated and convoluted story of the Dodgers leaving town, um, O'Malley and the the O'Malley and the controlling interests have taken a huge amount of blame and that, that they were manipulative. They really didn't want to stay in Brooklyn. They could have bought the land themselves. They didn't need it to be taken by eminent domain. There, I, I know all those stories and so did Clem. Um, but, I'll, but you've asked me, so I'm going to tell you what Clem's feelings were. Clem's feelings were different. Clem was very bright. and He was, he was aware of current events. And um, he, even though he was a ball player and a young guy at the time, he developed a different a different set of perspectives on this. First of all, as a businessman, everybody knew that O'Malley family had been to Milwaukee and seen what Milwaukee had offered the Braves to get them out of Boston. And that was a very attractive thing. There was concerns for parking in Brooklyn, six, 700 parking places. They went out to, I think, I'm not sure it was called County Stadium back then, but whatever the facility was, that the Braves were built to lure them to Milwaukee. O'Malley saw it. He visited it, and it blew him away. And he said, my God, with land, look at this. There's room for 10,000 cars. And the, and, the, and the state wanted them there, and the city wanted them there. They were business draws. The second thing is that Los Angeles was pursuing him with wonderful offers, Sam, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as if he woke up one morning and said, out of hell with Brooklyn, I'm getting out of here. He was being romanced by, by people in L.A. making him terrific offers, not just financially, but facility-wise. When they went in and agreed to go to L.A., that beautiful stadium is still standing. Robert Moses wanted them to move to Long Island and build a brand new stadium. That stadium has been torn down. So you're going to remember that they weren't just giving them, they gave them a castle out there to go to. I think it was the L.A. Coliseum, if I'm not mistaking. They It was a bit of an odd left field, short left field, but he was made some good offers. But mostly Clem's feeling was this. Moses didn't want the Dodgers there. He wanted them on Long Island. And Clem and other ball players, at least according to Clem, and we spoke about it quite a bit, they were fond of O'Malley. They understood what the pressures were. The, the Ebbets Field was, was in a stinky condition by then, too. It was a, it, they had to make a move. They said the men's rooms, Sam, weren't even really usable, that things were deteriorating badly. So a move was, was absolutely the answer. O'Malley was given a series of decisions to make, and this fellow Robert Moses stood in the way. He believed in the automobile, the bridge system. He wanted everything to move by car out to Long Island. He, he had whatever his views were of the future. Of, of New York State and the island. But O'Malley's move was never according to Clem Vindictive. And his proof of it is this, that he also set up Vero Beach. He, he didn't, it isn't just the move to L.A. The O'Malley's can't be judged simply by that in Clem Levine's mind because it was the O'Malley family that set up Vero Beach. And all those guys from the 50s, and maybe Carl Erskine can verify this when you talk to him next, they were very well treated by the O'Malley family for a long time. It was never a question of, of one of the guys not being able to have a house down there. These, these fellows weren't well paid in the 50s. There was always proper housing. There was even word that some of the ball players who were less fortunate got homes in Vera Beach. They were always invited down to fantasy camps, to spring trainings, to baseball signings. The O'Malley family made sure that the guys who didn't make the big money in the late 40s, 50s, and early 60s, were very, very well treated while they had control of the Dodgers. It wasn't a simple thing. When, when, for the rest of his life, the number of times we talked about it, he had a fondness for the, for the father and the son. He felt that the O'Malley family treated those boys of summer as young sons in a lot of ways. And then, until the day Clem died, he felt it was Robert Moses. Clem's hate, he put a hate on Robert Moses. Because Clem always felt that there was warehouses that could have become the new Abbott's Field down there in Brooklyn. So That was a long answer. I'm sorry to go on slow. No, no. But you asked it's me.
1: Perfect. Yeah. And there's, you know, it, it obviously in my head brings up all these different angles that I have yet to explore on the podcast when it comes to Robert Moses and just talking about uh, that entire section of the of the timeline, which will Obviously, uh, from a dramatic standpoint, be a big, big uh, part of the series. Sure. Uh, and, and so, I very much appreciate the long answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but specifically, when it comes to moving to Los Angeles, what were Clem's feelings regarding that, though? Uh, it's
0: a, it's a bit ironic because it's a contradiction. He didn't want to go to L.A.
1: and
0: and it make to me it makes his opinion of O'Malley of O'Malley even more uh, more honest. When when when. A lot of the guys didn't want to go. Duke Snyder didn't want to go. These were a lot of these guys were small northeast, small town northeast guys or New York located guys. They they didn't look forward to L. A. It was as far away as Mars to most of them, and um, so the move to L. A. was unattractive. It was uprooting, especially to a guy like Clem, all, who although he'd had a great season in '57, he knew the aches and pains were coming. He knew it was not going. It was going to be a short-lived move. He knew it. Um, and the, the the older fellows did not wish to go, they didn't wish to go. Um, I have a very funny, pic- I have a very funny picture, Sam, and I'll send you a copy. I just took a little phone card. I'm gonna send you a copy. When Clem first got to L.A., he had someone photograph him. He lay on home with his his elbows on home plate, his hand, his head in his hands, with a big scowl on his face, like he had a terrible headache, and he spelled out in baseballs L.A. And, and I look, I'm looking at it now above my desk. It was, Clem's, it was Clem's comment on Los Angeles. It was, this is giving, this is giving me a headache. What just happened to us? You know, Why are we here? On the other hand, he never pointed his finger at O'Malley, ever, ever. It was Robert Moses that was the bad guy in Clem's mind.
1: Well, it's obvious that a lot of politicians and a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the leaders like Robert Moses didn't do enough. Uh, when it comes to both the Dodgers and the Giants, and and uh, it, it it's just it's a it's a gray area that still needs to be explored. Uh, yep. I, uh, and there's there's a lot to uh, you know the, the research will never be done. Even when it's uh, what do they say art is art is never finished. It's just abandoned as the cliché right. goes. Uh, right. But you know it also perked my interest as to what his career, uh, what his um, 1958 was like and and so he pitched 104 innings uh he certainly you know I, it seems as if everybody had a you know it, it was a hard season for a lot of those those players it and was a it, hard season yep yeah and it it seems as if he had a 4.15 era, ERA yep. 14 saves in retrospect as you as you mentioned that all that stuff was uh, was going back the whip is the is one of the numbers that i always look to that i think is very underrated when it comes to to pitching and uh, it looks like a 1.37 I'm sorry no no, no. 1.39 uh, uh whip in 1958 Yep. and he was 6 and 6 which uh, you know that's a that's kind of uh, you, you you it's hard to really tell the losses make m- more of an impact when it comes to relievers than right. like the wins do because you can blow a save and then they'll they'll get your back in the bottom of the ninth if you will um, that's right but, uh, yeah, no, it's something that, that just popped into my mind as we were talking about that, that photo. So, and, and
0: okay. I want to yes. mention
1: one last thing, Sam.
0: As an undercurrent to what you just said, it was, it was closing in on the end of Clem Levine's era as the king of the bullpen. Mm-hmm. It was the, they were heading towards Larry, Sherry, and other younger pitchers. And so there was a whole bunch of things going on as Clem headed to L.A. And he knew it. The, the season wasn't good. There were, his shoulder was starting to act up. His arm was getting tired. Um, although they they made the series and beat uh, Chicago in 59, Clem was not a part of it. And so if you think about it, that move to L.A. was difficult and really, in a way, was career-ending for Clem. Yes, it was.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Although
1: he did have a little bit of a resurgence in 1960. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. With uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And also he, it looked like he, he, was, he was on Detroit for uh, a second. I mean, yeah, the,
0: the Dodgers let him go, sent him to, to uh, Detroit because he, they figured they didn't.
1: Rick? Uh, looks like we lost Rick, but uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. Rick, are you still there? Oh, well, it looks like we, uh, Rick's unfortunately cut off, um, but we're certainly going to have Rick on again at a later date. Thank you all for listening, and catch us next time, and enjoy the, uh, the holiday weekend, and happy Veterans Day to all those veterans out there. Have a good one.